doing today? Woo! All right, all right. Um, hey, look, there's a connect card on your seat. If you're new or just haven't gotten connected yet, please fill that out and give it to us at the end of service. In the lobby, we would love uh, to get to know you some more and hope you get plugged in. A couple things as well, you can QR code to sign up for on that very same sheet. The first thing is, uh, I look like I'm glowing, like an angel, like an angel. I spent a lot of time with Jesus this week, you know, more than normal, and I, I don't know if Brian or somebody, if you, I, you could keep me glowing, I guess, maybe you'll listen more, you know, maybe you'll, like Moses coming down from the mountain, I don't know if you guys know that reference, anyways, um, so, uh, hey, on, the, on your uh, little card there, there's a QR code, you can sign up for two things, one is the conference this weekend, uh, which is the Friday night, Saturday morning. And so you can join us, Heroes in Heaven, Out of This World Solutions to End This World Problems, to help you uh, understand how to navigate the world according to your faith, but to also help maybe some of your friends and family members or people you know, neighbors, uh, have an opportunity to give Christianity a real hearing uh, to maybe explain some things from a different perspective. So that's Friday night, Saturday morning. If you sign up this morning, it's 50% off, right? This is your only shot to do that. Remember, Saturday morning, there's childcare. So you parents can go ahead and come as well, uh, and we'll be able to do that together. So that's one thing. The next thing is our Celebrate Week, which is our time we really ramp up serving the city, which we do all the time. Uh, but that week, we're just going to go, we're going to overdo it, all right? So sports camp all week, block parties during the day, different ways for us to serve and love our neighbors. So we ask you, like, take some time off work if you can. Let's so we're just going to highly prioritize this week. We're going to flood the city with good deeds in the name of Jesus. Uh, so you can sign up as well on the website to join us for every day, one day, whatever it is that you can do. There's stuff in the morning, afternoon, and at night. So, okay, however your work schedule flows out, all right, there's, there's an open block for you to come participate and serve. So please go ahead and do that. Uh, now, before we jump in particularly uh, to the Word, uh, I wanted to pray and to really consider, um, and I just have a little thing I want to share with you, but in light of the recent events, uh, obviously in Uvalde, but then you think Buffalo and on and on we can go, there's an entire war going on in Ukraine and just a lot of heaviness, a lot of struggle, a lot of pain. Uh, and so the church uh, is good for one thing for sure, and that's to pray and to consider and to ask the Lord's blessing and the Lord's help and supernatural support. So uh, I wanted us to come together and take a moment to pray. Uh, and the Bible is very helpful in this. It gives us what the Psalms would call prayers of lament, uh, which is a place to really grieve before the Lord. Um, the Bible doesn't pretend at all like following God or knowing God's going to make all these difficult things all of a sudden go away. And so uh, we're going to pray. We're going to pray uh, for those families and friends. We're going to pray for brothers and sisters in Jesus that the Lord would use them. We're going to pray. So uh, as I pray, I want you to pray, please, as well. You can pray out loud if you want. You can pray to yourself. You can pray with a friend. I don't care. But don't just listen to me pray. We're going to take the next few minutes uh, and just bring these needs before uh, the Lord and to ask for his help, his supernatural support. So Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, first of all, what, what the scriptures teach us to pray is that you would come, Lord, that you would come quickly, God, that you would come make all things right, Lord, that you would bring into being the, the earth and the new heavens that will have no pain and no struggle. And so, Lord, that is our prayer, that you would come. And then we pray now, as we are here, you said, Psalm 46, that you are a refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. 
You said in Psalm 34, 18, that you are near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. You said in Psalm 68, 19, that you daily bear us up. So, Lord, I just pray, God, you said in 2 Corinthians 1 that you are the great comforter, Lord. So would you please, God, just please do the unthinkable, Lord, the supernatural to provide hope and help and healing and restoration for these families that have lost loved ones, for these parents who are grieving, God, I I can't even begin to comprehend. And I just pray, Lord, um, that you would do what only you can do, God, that you would minister to the deepest part of who they are. I pray, Lord, that the hope of the gospel would be revealed in life and in death. Our only hope is in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that your name would be glorified and that people would not run away from you, but that they would run to you, that you would be their refuge and their strength. We pray, Lord, that you would give wisdom and discernment to our brothers and sisters who may be ministering to these families in these different places, Lord, that you would grant them a fullness of your Holy Spirit to be able to be your hands and feet, God, to represent you well. And so, Lord, we bring these places, these people before you, God. We ask that you would come, and we ask that you would heal, and we ask that you would minister in ways that only you can. We ask this in the Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, we do have a, a message according to what we had planned. It actually kind of relates to some of the things we're about to talk about. But uh, the other day I was watching on the news, or I wasn't watching the news, I was, I was sent a clip of this pastor addressing uh, the news, kind of trying to help them process and think through uh, the school shooting and uh, what, how, how do Christians in our faith, you know, how do we deal with that and what does the pastor have to say? Uh, and I'm sure he's a really, really good brother and it's a really tough situation to be on the news and to have that conversation But I left watching that video feeling like Christianity and the truths of the Bible and the good news of the gospel has so much more to offer than what was just said. As a matter of fact, Christianity has the resources and is the only place that has the resources needed to handle crisis. I began to consider how the gospel is, in the worst times, the gospel makes the most sense. That's what the gospel is designed to do to deal with sin, to deal with suffering, to give solutions to this broken world. It is at the very worst when the gospel makes the most sense. And so as we're dealing with these things and navigating these issues, both personally and corporately and, and, uh, and with other family members and friends, when sometimes the faith of a Christian gets personally shook or God in the public eye gets put on trial, I want you to begin to process and to think through what does a Christian think about these things? How do we respond? And and what I want you to see is that as God gets put on trial and as the goodness and the power of God gets confused and misunderstood, the reality for us is that every other worldview, religion, and way of thinking should also be on trial and should be put to the test as to whether it has the resources necessary to deal with such suffering. This is kind of where I began to go in my mind this week. You know, I obviously have six kids. Five of them are actively in school. Three of them are in an elementary school. And so picking them up and dropping them off and just considering the terror of of that situation felt very real in my house. And, you know, you're sitting there with the Lord. You're sitting in your car like, I just, you know, I'm a pastor. I've read, you know, all the books about God and evil and suffering and his goodness in the Bible and all of that, and you're still sitting there like, 
Like, what? Like, what? What am I supposed to do with that? You know? You just have that thought in your mind, like, well, if I had the power to stop it, I would have stopped it. So why does God do, like, what is, what is happening? You know, you just, you know, and obviously there's a million wicked things happening every day that you don't even know of. And so if you're honest with yourself and you begin to deal with these questions, it creates some struggles, you know, internally to say, I know these things to be true about God. But it's really hard to understand, really hard. You know, I'm not going to get up here and pretend like, ah, I just, ah. There is some real struggle with the Lord to say, like, what, what do I do? What do I do with God's goodness and his power in the midst of a situation like this? And as I began to just pray and bring, your, bring my thoughts before the Lord, he knows how I'm feeling anyways. There's no reason to pretend. Uh, there's one verse that God brought to mind. And I want to help you navigate maybe some of your thinking or some of the thinking of friends and family members or just to equip you um, to handle things like this well and to maintain your faith. Uh, so in John 6, Jesus is doing his ministry, and he's doing lots of things. And, but it kind of hits a point where he starts doing really weird stuff and starts saying really weird things. And eventually he says something like, you need to eat my blood and uh, drink my blood and eat my flesh. And everybody's like, wow, only a psychopath would say that. That's really strange, you know? For real, they're all just like, that's weird, dude. Like, stop being so weird. And they didn't understand. You know, it was just, they didn't understand. What is Jesus doing? What is he saying? What I see doesn't make any sense. That's what they began to process. It's a similar feeling. We all have felt that way. What I know about Jesus, what I see doesn't make sense. I don't understand what God's doing, what God's saying. And so they began to feel that way about Jesus, and so they all started to leave. All of them, so many of them just started. Jesus had a great way of making the crowds much smaller. So, you know, when we do church, we're like bigger crowds, more people, and Jesus gets a big crowd and he whittles it down to like 12 people. This is the way of Jesus. So it's very interesting to read how he does his ministry. But then he turns to his disciples after the crowds are leaving, and he says something so interesting to them. He says, well, do you want to leave also? Here's your chance. Here's your out. And Peter looks at him and he says in John 6, 68, so that you can go back and look at it, he says, where else shall I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And that's been the phrase for me this last week. When I navigate my confusion or the terror of the world or just understanding how God operates sometimes, what is he saying? What is he doing? And I begin to consider my faith and all of these things, this phrase comes alive, well, where else do I go? And I want you to process this with me because I did a little thinking into this to say, well, if the goodness and the power of God is so misunderstood, I just don't understand what's happening in the midst of all the evil and the wickedness, uh, and I decide to just dismiss God altogether. Let's say my faith gets so shook, I say, well, God, just, I just can't anymore. I can't. There's no way God can be there and all these things happen. So I, where else do I go? Well, I have a few options, okay? The first is I could turn to atheism, uh, or you could call it materialism, secularism, humanism. Basically, I turn to the idea that there is no God. So if I just can't do I just can't. God, I just can't do that anymore to say there's no way God could be this way and these things happen. So I leave, leave the God, and I go to what? Where else do I go? So here's your options. The first thing is you go to no God. That would be one option. So atheism, materialism, secularism, humanism, but here's what happens when you get there. If I, if I turn to know God because I can't handle what God could be doing and I don't understand, then I'm left with 
a situation in which I have absolutely no resources whatsoever to deal with the struggles of life. I begin to lose all categories for thinking about these things. Because as soon as I lose God, I lose any objective morals. I lose standards of good and evil. I lose the ability to call evil, evil, and good, good. Without God to tell us what these things are, I begin to lose even categories for that. And so actually, as I move away from God, I move away from the very resource that allows me to think through this. And I move to a worldview that takes away that resource and leaves me with nothing. And so that doesn't seem actually very helpful. As a matter of fact, too, if I leave God and I move away from God because I can't, my, my faith can't stand this anymore, I still now have no explanation for even these feelings. Why in the world does something that happens so far away from me, I read it and I start crying thinking about it? Why does that happen? Why does that happen? If I am just atoms bouncing around, why in the world do I have this feeling called love? Why in the world do I care about what happens to other people that have nothing to do with me? Why, where would that even come from? Atheism, secularism, humanism provides no resource for which me to understand these feelings. And then I long for justice. Something must be done. Something must be fixed. This cannot be. This is unacceptable. And we all have those feelings that rise up within us. And if I turn away from God, then I lose even the reasoning behind that feeling. A bunch of atoms bouncing around in flesh and just flesh doesn't have a longing for justice. This lamp doesn't long for justice in the world. And so these things begin to teach me something. It's that I have a soul. And this reality is something you and I intuitively know that we are more than just flesh and blood. This is blatantly obvious to us until we get so mad about something that we dismiss the obvious. And now these things pull it back up to say, I obviously am a spiritual being. I have a soul. I am made in the image of God. Therefore, I have these things called love and justice and morals. And these things come from him. And if I lose lose God because I don't understand how all these things work, then I lose the ability to even process this situation at all. I have left the greatest resource to handle the struggle, and I have ended up with something that has nothing to offer me. This is what it would look like. Where else can I go? Not only is obviously believing in no God not true, but it's unhelpful. It doesn't do for you anything. So then, okay, if this all, this, all these truths point me to the fact, okay, there must be someone out there. There must be something more than just atoms bouncing around. There's got to be something more that explains all of these things. Okay, well, now i got a few options. I can look around the world, and I can turn to many gods, like multiple of them, not many as in small, which they would be because they're not God anyways, but many as in multiple, M-A-N-Y, and then... Uh, or I could turn to one God, which Jews, Christians, and Muslims would all, would all hold to that. So I could turn to like Hinduism, Buddhism, many gods. Or I could turn to become Jewish or Muslim or Christian. All these have one God. And so if no God is obviously not the solution, where else do I go? I can do that. Now, there are a lot of differences between these things, and uh, I would love to walk you through them all, but that would take a lot of time. So I want to distinguish the main difference. The main difference between all of these things is Jesus. The main difference between all of these gods, so-called gods, is Jesus. The main difference between all of these religions is Jesus. This is the difference. And let me tell you why this is so important. Because every other god or so-called gods 
by the profession of the people that follow them are disconnected and depersonal to their experiences. God in his very nature is other and he is distant and he is depersonalized. He does not know what it is like to be me unless I look to Jesus. Now as I consider all of my options, there is an option of a God who's familiar with what it's like to be me. There is actually an option of a God who's familiar with suffering. The Bible tells us that he is acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, and so now in my grief, I can turn to a God who is acquainted with grief. I can turn to a God who became man, who took on my flesh, and who died for my sin, and who experienced physical and emotional pain and torment, and then the wrath of God. I can turn to a God who understands and who sympathizes with my experiences because he became like me, because he died for me, because he suffered for me. And so I look to all of the options, and I say, where else can I go? I can go with a God who is distant and depersonalized, or I can go with Jesus, a God who's acquainted with grief, a God who can help me in the midst of my grief. Not only is this a personal savior and experience with me, but Jesus is the only one who has dealt with the real problem. Now, obviously, I pray for leaders in our country, this is beyond me, to have wisdom and discernment to apply the right laws to mitigate evil as best as possible. May the Lord bring that about. But at the same time, sin is the problem that creates all of this evil, and the thing that has to be dealt with is sin. The only solution to the world's problems is the dealing with sin. We have to resolve the sin problem. That's what needs to be taken care of. And there is no other way, and there is no other way of thinking in worldview or religion that would deal with the root issue. It's my sin. It's your sin. And it is the sin inside of me and the sin inside of you that brings forth all of the evil in the world. And so I need a God that can deal with that. But I need a God who doesn't just deal with that because if he just dealt with that, I'd be smushed and all his wrath and justice would come upon me. He would punish me for my evil and everybody else in the world because that's what we deserve. And if that's all I had, then I would be hopeless. But if I turn to Jesus, I get a God who not only loves me and is not only just, but he can bring these two things together through the cross. Evil must be dealt with and it must be punished. And your longing for justice is good, but that also applies to you. God has to deal with you too. And he has to deal with everyone according to their sin. But by the cross, we have a God who can give mercy to sinners and who can uphold justice for sin at the same time. Because Jesus died for my sin and your sin, we can receive the mercy of God. The punishment has been dealt with. The justice has been given, but somebody else took our place. But if we do not put ourselves under the covering of Jesus, we then begin to take the sin. We take the punishment for our own sin. And so either way, God is just. He punishes sin, and God is loving. There's an out for mercy. This is the resource and the truth that Christianity and the Bible is presenting to us and offers us not only to deal with our own sin and to be saved, but to navigate the sorrows of life.
And now in the midst of our confusion as to how this gets played out in particular circumstances, we are firmly rooted in these truths. Where else shall we go? Only Jesus provides the solution and only Jesus is a God who can sympathize. Where else shall we go? So this is what I mean by how Christianity has the resources and the truths of the Bible have the resources that we need to deal with crisis. And as a matter of fact, it is not the God of the Bible who should be on trial, but every other worldview must take the stand and give an account for the kind of help they would provide in the midst of the crises of life. And when we test them and try them and cross-examine them, they all come up lacking and empty, not only in their claims to be true, but in their ability to be helpful whatsoever. And then we come back to Jesus to say, in the midst of my confusion and uncertainty, where else shall I go? I'm going to stick with him. And I'm going to trust that if he loves the world enough to die for the world, then he's loving. And if he died for my sins, then he's just. And I can trust him. Where else am I going to go? So I hope that helps you not only understand and maybe process it, but point you closer to Jesus. In the midst of my doubt and confusion, I ended up closer to Jesus than before trusting him more than before, more sure of him than before. I mean, where else am I going to go? So not only is the truth of the gospel, which some of you need to receive for the first time today, not only is that the greatest resource for crisis and for our lives and the truth that we need the most, the Bible gives us more and more truths that help us navigate day-to-day life. And one of these that we're going to see today is the reality of the return of Jesus. This is also a resource in the Christian tradition, according to the truths of the Bible, that helped me navigate the pain and the difficulties of life. The return of Jesus becomes central to my understanding of life right now. It gives me a hope for a new world and a new life. It also satisfies my longing for Jesus. I mean, my longing for justice. When Jesus comes back, every wrong will be made right, and a new world order will be entered into where there is no death, suffering, pain, or hate. Those who have committed evil will be punished according to their evil and given an eternal punishment, but those who've trusted in the Lord will be saved. And all will be made right on that day. And this return of Jesus both takes care of my hopelessness and it gives me hope for a new life and it takes care of my status, my longing for justice, that wrongs would be made right. The return of Jesus has everything to do with how I navigate my day-to-day life. And it is another resource that the Bible gives us to help us navigate the ups and downs of life itself. I want you to see that Christianity is a deep well, and the Bible is a deep well from which we can pull to help us hold firm, stay strong, and navigate the ups and downs of life. As a matter of fact, there is no other place like it. So in light of all of that, open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians 5, and we're going to read a little bit more about the coming of Jesus and what that means for us. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. 
I want to pause real quick right here, and I want to remind you, I wonder if any of you remember. Does anybody remember, I said this in the first week, how long Paul was in Thessalonica? Yes, does anybody remember? Three weeks, all right. Thank you, thank you. All right, somebody learned, all right, on that day. Three weeks. Paul was in Thessalonica three weeks, and look what he says. You have no need that I would write anything else to you, meaning that he had given significant time to training and teaching them about the return of Jesus. And this is important because we see through 1 Thessalonians what Paul calls Christianity 101. And it's not what we call Christianity 101. Here are the three primary categories of Christianity 101 according to Paul. The gospel, that Jesus died and rose again for sins. If you trust and believe in him, you will be saved. The gospel. The second thing is, okay, you believe the gospel, get ready to suffer. 1 Thessalonians 3, remember we talked all about that. Your destiny, right? Your destiny while you're on this earth is suffering. This is just the name of the game. Then the third one is Jesus coming back. This is Christianity 101. He was there for three weeks. He taught them the gospel. He prepared them to suffer. And he reminded them over and over again that Jesus is coming back. And he says, these are the primary things you needed to learn. And how often do we neglect those other two things? I think of the gospel, I hope, would be primary to us. But being ready for suffering, we, we teach that later. And the second coming of Jesus, we don't even talk about that much. And Paul is like, I was there for three weeks, and these are the three main things I taught you. I think it instructs us, and so I think it teaches us something about our priorities, the things that we need to know, and the things that we need to be sure of, especially upon believing in Jesus. So Christianity 101, the gospel, suffering, and the second coming. Those are Paul's essentials for when you become a Christian. So verse 2, he says, for you yourselves are fully aware. You're fully aware. Look at this. Three weeks. Is there three weeks? You're fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Most of the time. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So last week, we covered verses 9 through 11, which are very important. So I hope that you make sure to check that out if you missed it. We also covered the section before, and so we're kind of in the middle right now. So if you missed last week, please check that out because it's going to help you with the whole picture. So as we discussed last week, the return of Jesus provides a lot of encouragement to us. As we're going to see this week, it also challenges the way that we live. It's an encouragement and a challenge all at the same time. We're going to stay pretty simple today, and I want to explain really one verse. Verse 6 seems to be the emphasis. So then, what is the result, you know? Okay, Jesus is coming back like a thief in the night. So what now? He says, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. This is the lifestyle that God is calling us into. And I remember listening to a podcast. Um, I don't even remember who was on it or what it was, but there was a story this one lady who was a missionary and had met this lady who got saved in Afghanistan. 
and began to experience lots of persecution. So her and her husband fled Afghanistan to run away from persecution. They came to the States, and they weren't here long in the States before the wife started begging the husband to go back. And he kept saying, why? Why in the world do you want to go back? And this was her response. She said, there is a demonic lull over America. And here's the sentence that keeps me up at night. She said, the Christians are asleep, and I am getting sleepy too. Her experience of coming back here from being highly vigilant in her life and living on the edge, so to speak, every day, and her Christianity being the very essence of her life, she comes here and she begins to... So much so that it gets very dangerous for her. It is not a bad thing that nobody's trying to kill you today, okay? You don't need to feel bad for that. But you do need to be aware of the dangers and how complacent you can become when your Christianity doesn't cost you very much. So she comes over here and she says, the Christians are asleep and I am getting sleepy too. I need to go back. And I think that is a word for all of us at one level or another. This is also what Paul is mentioning here in verse 3. And he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. He's pulling from two primary examples. The first is Noah. When God tells Noah to build the ark and that there's going to flood that's going to come and cover the earth, Noah tries to warn everybody, but nobody listens. And everybody says, that's stupid. Nothing like that is ever going to happen. That's not possible. And Noah's given them fair warning, but they are saying there's peace and security. There's no reason for us to be afraid. And then all of a sudden, before they are ready, the rain comes and it's too late. Not only is that an example, but if you go forward to Jeremiah the prophet, who's warning the people of Israel that destruction is coming because of their sin, there's a group from Babylon who is coming to take you over. The wrath of God is going to come. You have been disobedient. Jeremiah is warning them, warning them, warning them, warning them, but there's a bunch of false prophets around them that keep saying, no, 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 God would never do that, and they yell, peace, 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 when there is no peace. And they created a sense of complacency a lull, so to speak. And then the people of God never repented. They were not ready. And as sure as he said, the Babylonians came and they erect house. There's a real danger in this sense of peace, peace, when there is no peace. There's a real danger of living complacent when a warfare mindset is needed. A commentary that was helpful to me said that the word sleep here is used metaphorically to denote indifference to spiritual realities. It covers all sorts of moral and spiritual laxity or insensibility. I thought those phrases were helpful. An indifference to spiritual realities. To be asleep is to be indifferent to spiritual realities. Indifferent to the condition of your soul. Indifferent to the condition of other souls around you. Indifferent to the cry of the poor. Indifferent to the holiness of God. Indifferent to spiritual realities. It is to be indifferent, to be unengaged, to be lax about your own life and your own soul. To not take great care. This is what it spiritually means to be asleep. Sleep. And he gives two warnings. Don't be asleep and also don't be drunk. So this is what I think he's discussing. To, to be asleep is to be unengaged, right? Like when you're asleep. But to be drunk is to be engaged in the wrong way. You're awake, but you're doing the wrong things. So you're either asleep 
and you're missing it, or you're awake, but you're engaged in the wrong things. Either way, whether you're asleep or drunk, what are you? You're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready for the second coming of Jesus. You're not ready for the next trial in your life. You're not ready. You're asleep or you're drunk. Now, obviously, this could include actually getting drunk, but it's more of a picture, I think, of just worldliness, to be drunk on the pleasures of the world, to be totally, totally worldly in pursuing those things. So therefore, the call is to be awake and to be sober. Now, one of the things that the horrors of life does is it forces us to deal with the realities of life. It forces us to wake up and to remember how evil things can be. It forces us to remember death and how it's coming for us all. It forces us to deal with our emotions about these things. It brings up sadness and struggle. These are unpleasant things, but they cannot be dealt with while you're asleep. And so when the struggles of life or the terrors of the news come, it does one thing helpful. It wakes us up. It wakes us up to what's really going around. The world is a very dark place. This is the point of part of this passage, is that the world is a dark place, but those who have faith in Christ are called children of light. Therefore, we are called to operate as light in the darkness. This is what God is calling us to. This is my city light. We always talk about light is made for dark places. To be awake spiritually is to bring your light into dark places so that the gospel and the good news of Jesus can shine there. That's what it means to be awake, to be aware, to care, to work on your own light, to be holy, to grow so that you can shine brighter. It's to care about that. It's to care about the light in my soul. It's to care about the darkness around me. It is to not be spiritually indifferent about heaven and hell. It's to care. This is what God is calling us into. And this is what the second coming does, is it puts everything in its right light. And what the Bible is telling us is that we can't fall asleep while the world needs us to be awake. And we cannot dim our light when we're supposed to go into the dark. We can't be asleep. We don't have the luxury of sleeping and taking it easy while the world needs us to be awake. How terrible would it be for someone who just lost their child and is struggling and they stumble into a church nearby and they find a bunch of Christians who are asleep? What a tragedy for them not to be awake, not to be ready. A bunch of Christians who haven't read their Bible, so they have no idea what to say. Bunch of Christians who don't pray and so they don't know how to pray. A bunch of Christians who have tried just to avoid doing bad things and they don't know how to take their light into the darkness and wage war. This is what the second coming does, is it puts everything in this light and makes us take our life so seriously. And listen, I really hope to encourage you this morning in some way, but the conviction of the Holy Spirit wants to bring a challenge to us to wake up. Let me give you some examples. I began to think through, okay, what happens when people fall asleep when they're needed, okay? And so I'm sure you could think of a lot as well. I want to help bring this to light in your life. I just have a few examples what happens when we sleep when the world needs us to be awake? So one is this. Imagine a lighthouse operator who falls asleep and doesn't wake up in time to fix the light that has grown dim, which he's not aware of. 
And because the light is dim, the ship that is coming, which he didn't know was coming, doesn't have the directions that they need. And because they don't have the directions that they need, they hit the rocks because they're not where they should be. And it's all because the person who was supposed to stay awake fell asleep. The damage of falling asleep wasn't only to the lighthouse operator, but most importantly to the people on the ship. The reason why the lighthouse operator fights to stay awake is because he cares about the people on the ship. Imagine if all of the vaccine scientists in all the world decided to take a nice long sabbatical break and take some naps right when the pandemic hit. Imagine at the point when the world needed their skills and knowledge the most, they decide to go to sleep. That's what it's like for a bunch of Christians to not take their life seriously and to fall into complacency. Imagine a general who falls asleep while his men are at war or a doctor who falls asleep while his patient is on the table and around and around I could go with these thoughts and experiments for you to realize the danger of sleeping on the job. Some of you have been fired for falling asleep on the job, so you personally know the danger of falling asleep on the job. Or a practical one we all struggle with is imagine what it's like to fall asleep at the will. Not only do you put your own soul in danger, but the danger of those around you. For a person to fall asleep at the will endangers himself and everyone else. This is the weightiness of staying awake. Do you hear me, okay? The Lord himself, okay, if you put your faith in Jesus, he has saved you, and he has placed his spirit inside of you, and then he has given you an assignment, and you are supposed to stay awake and fulfill the assignment until he calls you home. That's your assignment. But here we are falling asleep on the job. The world needs you to be awake. The world needs you to be alive to what's happening. The world needs you to have a heart that cares and to cultivate concern for others. The world needs you to be madly in love with Jesus. The world needs you to not be like the world. The world needs you to be different so that you can enter into their darkness and not bring darkness with you, but bring something different to bring the light of Jesus. The world needs the church to be awake, to be fully awake, to be zealously awake, to be energetically awake, to be alive to the realities of God, and to push forward to this end, and to give our whole lives for this cause, for those here and for those around the world, to be awake to the realities of heaven and hell, to be awake to the fact that souls need Jesus, to be awake to holiness and a concern. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The world needs us to be awake. But many of us have gone to sleep. The second coming of Jesus gives us a startling reminder of these things. Let me give you a phrase. I think that sums this up that might help you take something home with you. It is our hope in the end that makes us active in the present. A lack of expectancy creates a lack of urgency. It's my hope in the end that makes me active in the present. What is the motivation to continuing to give your life away unless you're looking forward to the life to come? Why would I sacrifice 
And why would I work towards these ends? And why would I consider other people's needs more important than my own? And why would I give away my time, energy, and resources? Why would I do that unless I knew and was fully convinced that I had hope? It's my hope in the end makes me active in the present. And it's your lack of expectation for the life to come that gives a lack of motivation right now. And because you're not looking forward to eternity with Jesus, you're not fighting the fight for Jesus here on earth. It's your strength. It's your motivation. It's your reason. The hope in the end is what makes you active in the present. And because you're not very hopeful about what is to come or because you don't even think about it that much, then you lack a ton of motivation. A lack of expectancy creates a lack of urgency. Like if I really believed, like we're going to read a story. If I really believed that Jesus was coming back right this instant, I would live so different. A lack of expectancy of not only Jesus coming, but my life with him, that like I can give away my life now because I'm getting a better one later, is creating a lot of inability and a lack of motivation because I have to take care of myself, I have to get mine now, I have to make my life the best I can, but then the Christian comes in and says, no, 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 my best life is later. I can literally give it all away right now because I have so much hope for what's to come. But it's your lack of hope for what is to come that makes you less motivated to live the life God has called you to right now. A lack of expectancy has created a lack of urgency in your life. Let me read you a story Jesus tells about staying ready for when he comes. It's in Luke 12, verse 35 through 43. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. He will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, are you telling us this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them the portion of food at the proper time, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. This is what it means to live ready for Jesus. We must live as people with expectation for the master to come ready for him to give an inspection on our lives. I want you to write down this because I want you to think about it often during your day. It's this, every decision should be made with this consideration. Do I want Jesus to come back and find me doing this? This will change everything about all of your decisions every day if you take it seriously. Remember, it's a lack of expectancy that creates a lack of urgency. 
But now the call is to say every day in every decision, do I want Jesus to come back and find me doing this? Do I want Jesus to come back and find me in this relationship? Do I want Jesus to come back and find me at my work doing the way I do it? Do I want Jesus to come back and find me in front of my computer looking at things I should not? If I want Jesus to come back, do I want Jesus to come back and find me focused on my material possessions? Do I want Jesus to come back and find me indifferent to the cry of the poor? Do I want Jesus to come back and find me neglecting his word and undesiring of his presence? Do I want Jesus to come back and then say, man, I wish I would have prayed more? Do I want Jesus to come back and say, man, I wish I would have gotten into the word? Do I want Jesus to come back and find me neglecting my duties and his household? Or do I want Jesus to come back and find me doing the very thing he asked me to do? This question will wreck your entire life. Please give it some thought. Do I want Jesus to come back and find me doing this? He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now, as we close, I want to give you this final thought when it comes to expectation. Because it calls us children of the light. And you and I know that when you're in the light, you are not caught off guard by the light. Okay? Light is only shocking when you're in the dark. So it's like when somebody flips the light on when you're sleeping or when you're stumbling into your bathroom at night and you flip the light on and about pass out from the rays, it's the light, it shocks you because you've been in the dark. When you walk outside from a movie theater, it takes a second. But if you're in the light, then more light doesn't do anything at all to you. And so this is what happens. You walk in the light and then the light of the world comes, then you're ready. You see what I'm saying? But if you're walking in the dark, then it'll be a shock to your system. This is why he calls you children of the light, because Jesus is the light of the world. And to come and to be walking in the light and doing what the master has asked you to do and caring about the things the master has asked you to care about and growing in the ways he's asked you to grow and leaving the things he told you to leave and doing the things he told you to do and not doing the things he told you not to do and being obedient to every word that comes from his mouth and pursuing that lifestyle with the Lord. This is what it means to walk in the light. And so when the light of the world comes, it's a natural progression. You can welcome him with expectation and excitement. But if you are walking in the dark, you will be shocked. I read this before, and preacher better than me, I don't even know when I remember this, but he described it like this. He said, to those who do not know the Lord, he comes like a thief in the night. But to those who do know him, he comes as a friend in the middle of the day. And that's the closing thought for us today is when Jesus comes, will he come as a thief in the night to you? Will it come as a shock to your system? Will you be unready? Or will he come as a friend in the middle of the day, as a natural progression of the life you're already living in life? To those of you who are my friends and family, those that are participating in this church, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I call you and challenge you by the word of God to wake up and be sober-minded.
and be ready for when Jesus comes. And to those of you who are still seeking out Christ, unsure, I ask you the question I asked in the beginning, where else shall you go? Jesus is offering you eternal life here and now. Would you please trust in him? Let's pray and respond to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you have not left us without hope and the truth that we need, God, to, to handle life. Lord, thank you that you've been so kind to reveal what needs to be revealed. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church, Lord, to be awake to the things that you're calling us into, to be awake to the needs of the city around us, to be awake to the souls in our neighborhood, to be awake to the spiritual condition of our own lives. Lord, please, God, don't let us slumber our lives away, Lord, or die complacent. God, would you light a fire in us? Make us that kind of place, Lord. I pray that when you come, you will find City Light doing exactly what you asked us to do. And I praise you that I do think that is happening. And there's so much grace here in this church, Lord, and I thank you for what you're doing. And I pray that we would do that more and more. And that we would live according to your desires more and more. And that we would prioritize the things you care about more and more. So would you wake us up, Lord, wherever we are at, whatever our lives are in, Lord, to those that are foolishly walking away from you, wake them up, Lord. Where else shall they go, Lord? To those that have fallen asleep, God, wake them up. God, light a fire in their souls to live for you with urgency, God. To those that are living for you, God, and sacrificing it all, Lord, would you encourage and strengthen them that you are coming soon, that help is on the way. Whatever needs to be done in each soul, Lord, here in this room and online, would you do it now by your spirit? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Once you stand, let's respond to the Lord.